Hello and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Jürgen Lawson and I'm the editor of the BJGP. In this episode, we talk to David Whiteley, who is a lecturer at the Department of Nursing and Community Health, School of Health and Life Sciences at Glasgow Caledonian University. And the paper is Developing a Primary Care Initiated Hepatitis C Treatment Pathway in Scotland, a Qualitative Study. Now, first of all, I will just make a small declaration of interest in that um, some of my clinical work is with people who use drugs. And I have many moons ago, many years ago, I was actually the RCGP lead for the hepatitis B and C certificate in and around this. So I do have something of an interest myself. First of all, though, I started by asking Dave to tell us a little bit about the historical treatment for hepatitis C and the new treatments that are now available. Um, the thing that underpins this whole idea of GPs being more involved are the changes that we've seen in the treatment over the last 10 years or so. So back back when I was a hep C nurse, so back in sort of the late 2000s, treatment was horrible, really. I mean, it was um, two particularly toxic drugs that we gave people for months and months and months and months. And at the end of it all, it, it didn't work for a lot of people. So it was it was pretty bad. We are now somewhere where we have a new um, collection of drugs called direct-acting antivirals, which are the polar opposite of what we used to have for treatment. These drugs are safe. They are easy to take, very few side effects, short courses. And I suppose the most important thing is for most people, they work. They're really effective for pretty much everybody. And so those changes that we've seen have let us start to think about how we give out hep C treatment and, and where we can do that. And there's been this big push for moving treatment away from sort of traditional centres. So we always used to treat in infectious disease and hepatology outpatient clinics and pushing that treatment out into the community. And um, there's been quite a lot of studies that have shown that that's really effective. So treatment out in the community is just as safe and just as effective as treatment through these more traditional pathways. Um, but it's done something else, I think, as well. It's done not just where we can treat people, but who can treat them as well. Because there's also been other work that's looked at task shifting. So asking non-specialists to initiate hep C treatment. And again, what that's shown is that that is just as safe and as effective as if it's initiated by specialists. So we've got, we've got to this place where we've got these new fancy drugs that work really well. Um, we know that they're safe in these community pathways and we know that they're safe and effective given out by non-specialists. And so it sort of, it, it makes sense then to sort of start thinking, well, where's GPs? Where is their role here in the UK? Can, can, they, um, can they do anything more? Yeah, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more because that's obviously what you explored in this paper here about how pathways and how GPs could fit into hep C treatment. But it's worth lingering for a moment on the incredible transformation, revolution really in hepatitis C treatment that now exists. And um, it's worth pointing out as well, as I mentioned earlier, that um, it's mostly in people who use drugs in the UK, hepatitis C, not, not exclusively, but the majority are. But there is this potential to eradicate hepatitis C. That, I mean, that to, to actually, if we really uh, were properly ambitious about it, we could actually, as you say, the word eradicate is appropriate. I think we could, there could be no more hepatitis C in this population and across them, across uh, other people as well. So it's an incredible opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, this all, this all feeds into the World Health Organization 2016. They've said, they've given these goals for the eradication of hep C by 2030. 
And so it's, it is, it all fits into that. It's like this idea of we can't keep doing things the way we've done them. We know we need to scale up treatment and testing of hep C and we need to look at new ways of doing things. The goals, the, the targets that they've set, they are ambitious, but um, the UK is on target to, to achieve that. And so we need to keep pushing forward and need to keep doing more. The action plans in Scotland and in the UK, they're all about pushing treatment into the community. It's all about eclectic pathways and giving people as, I suppose, as much opportunity as possible to get tested first and foremost, and then to also get treated and removing those barriers that we know exist to treatment and, and have done for years and years. And historically, GPs have tended just to be involved in the, perhaps the testing and the diagnosis bit at the most and not always then sometimes because there are some challenges. And we can talk a little bit about the workload pressures that we are well aware of. But a, a fantastic opportunity here. Tell us a little bit more about your paper then and in terms of um, what a primary care initiated hep C pathway could look like. Well, I'll say what we did, first of all, we kind of took a, um, a behaviour change approach. We, we realised that if this idea has got any traction, that people needed to do things differently to the way they were doing things now. So we went and spoke to those people. We spoke to GPs, GPs specifically who had, um, who had the care of people who use drugs as part of their routine practice at the moment. Um, we spoke to ID consultants, hepatology consultants, hep C nurses, pharmacists, uh, specialist pharmacists, community pharmacists. We spoke to um, support, so third sector support workers that care for people um, with hep C. And I suppose most importantly, we spoke to people with hep C themselves. So we spoke to people who use drugs you know, who also have or had hepatitis C. And the first thing we did with all that data was look at it to look for pretty much barriers and enablers to this whole idea. So what's going to stop GPs doing it? And you mentioned um, capacity, which was a huge thing that came out of it. Um, but what also might help at the moment? And those ideas, those barriers and enablers, they shaped the kind of the structure of this pathway. We wanted to try and address as many of those things in the actual structure itself. Um, once we got that structure, we, we looked at the data again and we clustered it around particular steps in the pathway. And we used behavior change theory, we used the behavior change wheel to develop recommendations to kind of overcome specific barriers at particular steps on the pathway. So we tried to kind of address barriers in two ways, one by the pathway structure, but then also by these recommendations that we, we put alongside it to help implement it in practice. Now, you've got the excellent figure two sets out the pathway that has come out of this work. What, what do you think are the main learning messages you you found from doing this research in terms of the barriers that, that your primary care has got to overcome in order to make this, you know, to push these DAAs out into the community and get primary care uh, practitioners, as I know you were careful to say, because it's not necessarily just GPs, get them involved? I suppose two key things from that pathway. The first, as I mentioned, was GP capacity. We knew that, heard it again and again, obviously, the, the crisis in general practice, we can't be asking GPs to do a loads and loads and loads more work. So however this pathway worked, we needed to make sure that the burden on GPs was reduced as much as possible. We didn't want to, we didn't want to put additional, lots and lots of additional things on their plate. So for that reason, it's kind of designed as a, as a, ref, a treat and refer pathway. A GP initiates treatment, and really that's where their job ends. The other services pick up the patient then and do everything that they already do, but just do it in a slightly different order. The other big thing that we did in terms of alleviating that burden was moving the assessment of liver fibrosis to the very end of treatment. So traditionally, that's, that's always been a big barrier to GPs doing this. 
you had to have a good idea of how fibrosed the person's liver was sitting in front of you before you started treatment, because that was going to influence what drug you took and how long it was going to be and all those sorts of things. But one of the joys of having all these direct acting antivirals is now you have drugs where you can give a specific drug for a certain length of time, irrespective of the fibrotic or serotic stage. So we can move that. We don't have to do things in the same way as we always did them. The one thing you might be worried about is someone decompensating whilst they're on treatment. But what we did was we thought, well, that's a very different thing. Risk assessing for decompensation is a different thing to getting fibro scans and ultrasounds and having to do all those sort of very specific technical things, um, which you can do later on. So we separated those out. So in terms of the pathway, what we're suggesting is a risk assessment for decompensation before treatment and doing the actual liver assessment and all the follow-up for liver if you need to do that at the end. One of the things I really like about this paper is it's intensely practical in terms of actually GPs who look at this and want to, you know, put in place pathways or get involved. There's, there's really some um, very straightforward advice. We're not dancing around this. It's not an academic, it's, an, it's, you know, it's a strongly academic paper, but it's not academic in the sense that it's not implementable. It's a highly practical. Yeah, I mean, that was the key. I mean, we did, we have published sort of the theoretical stuff beforehand, but the whole point of this was to come up with something that could be used, that you could put into practice and suggest ways that you could um, help implement that in practice. It, it had to be practical. I mean, that's the point, I suppose. The, the ultimate point is we want to get people treated. We want to open up treatment and reduce the barriers for them. And hopefully that pathway is a way of doing that. One barrier GPs might mention is around taking blood and particularly people who've injected drugs and have got pervenous access. Perhaps you could talk to that just a little. Yeah, that came up um, and we have recommendations around that. One of the things interestingly was, well, what we have in the pathway is we've put in dry blood spot testing, um, which now can tell you not just if, if someone's antibody positive, but if they have a, an active infection. And one thing that came up was actually wariness around trusting dry blood spot testing. And so in turn, we recommend obviously doing dry blood spot testing but also there was um, implications for edu education around um, the confidence of people in the results, you know, those sorts of things. It wasn't just the practicalities of doing the stuff. We need to actually um, encourage people and, and bolster their confidence that the stuff they're seeing, the test that they're going to get back is actually useful and they can make clinical decisions based on it. And there was also stuff around, in terms of blood taking, using all the expertise in the clinic. So using it, you know, Maybe taking blood is difficult for a particular person. Maybe other people in the clinic have more experience, but also using the experience of the person sitting in front of you. Oftentimes, people who use drugs know their bodies best. And for some reason, people don't ask them, don't always ask them the best ways to do these things. I would also just emphasize that it's about just having those speaking to people or having those conversations. If you've got them in the clinic as well, what a wonderful opportunity because people who use drugs often have multimorbidities and other problems as well so as well as the hepatitis c it just provides an incredible um, opportunity this and and actually building people's confidence because certainly my experience in clinic has been that people who wouldn't normally engage with any kind of treatment service have just had their hep c treatment eight weeks straightforward job done and it actually builds their confidence that the medical services can offer something for them as well um, so there's some, there are even wider opportunities beyond Hep C, and then goodness knows that's a fantastic one in its own right here. One of the interesting things that came up was all around one of the 
enablers that the GPs are talking about was this fact that you could do something practical for the people sitting in front of you. It was very rare that you got to say to somebody, I've cured you of a thing. You know, mostly it's long-term management. Um, and that was a real, um, something that a lot of GPs were very enthusiastic about being able to actually do something for the people they see week in, week out. And they do provide this holistic care for all sorts of different aspects of their life. And much of that is ongoing. But to be able to actually give some practical outcomes, some I've actually, we've cured, we've got rid of one of those problems that you've been worried about was a key enabler of something a lot of people thought that's why this pathway would be really useful. It really feeds into that idea of being able to give holistic care for these people without not sending them to 30 other specialists, you know, different people, which a lot of people, as we know, find really difficult engaging with people like that. Some really wonderful uh, research here and really practical and intensely useful. I hope it's going to make a huge difference um, to many people in the future and, uh, and GPs can get involved with it. Dave, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research papers and articles can be found at bjgp.org. The show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Do share if you've enjoyed it. Subscribe via all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your podcaster of choice. Thanks again. Thanks again.